Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Master of Ceremonies, Jaimini's Mimamsa Sutra. In the Brahminical culture which spawned the philosophical schools we'll be looking at in the coming episodes, nothing was more central than the practice of ritual. From the spectacular expenditure of a king in the year-long horse ritual, to more everyday offerings of plants or milk into a fire, rituals were the way for householders to propitiate the gods. They were also the key to the high status of Brahmin priests. So it was inevitable that the validity of ritual and the authority of the Vedic texts on which ritual practices were based would be a central point of dispute between the Brahminical tradition and its critics. For the Buddhists, rituals were nothing special, just another set of actions undertaken in the pursuit of desires that we would be better off without. Adherents to the Veda, though, called these texts shruti, meaning what is heard, in other words, a revelatory source of knowledge about the duties laid upon humanity. As we saw in the last episode, texts of the Brahminical tradition often allude to the challenges posed by Buddhists and other skeptics. In the Nyaya Sutra, the founding text of the Brahminical Nyaya school, the enemy critique of ritual is summed up as follows, The Vedas cannot command assent, because they suffer from the following epistemological defects, falsity, inconsistency, and repetition. Notice that the opponent is making three complaints here. The Vedas are false, inconsistent, and, as if that weren't bad enough, also repetitive. The charge of falsity derives from the fact that the promises of Vedic ritual are not always fulfilled. A householder seeking wealth might, for instance, adapt a ritual involving boiled rice by instead putting 100 gold coins in the boiling water. You might think that someone with a hundred gold coins is already doing pretty well, but let's leave that aside. In carrying out this ritual, the sacrificer follows a kind of rule. If you want to be rich, then boil gold coins and then offer them in sacrifice. The charge is that this is false, in the sense that someone may well undertake the ritual, yet remain relatively poor. Or one may perform a different ritual aiming at the growth of one's family, yet remain childless. Perhaps the defender of the Veda could take a leaf from the Buddhists and other Shramana movements and direct attention away from such concrete goals. Don't worry about family and riches. Instead, focus on spiritual matters, where the rituals can reliably deliver, or at least where it is harder to tell whether the ritual delivers or not. We find such an injunction in the Maitrayana Upanishad. One who desires heaven should perform the fire ritual. But Vatsyayana, a commentator on the Nyaya Sutra, had to admit that this shift of focus from material to spiritual goods might not be enough. A skeptic could still reply that if any of the ritual injunctions in the Vedas are false, then that brings Vedic authority as a whole into disrepute. If you can't rely on the Vedas to get kids and gold, why think they will get you into heaven? The other two objections seem less damning. The Vedas are inconsistent and repetitive, but these are a cause of equal worry to the Nyayakas. The Veda tells us both, after sunrise, perform the sacrifice, and also, the sacrifice performed after sunrise goes to the dogs. Then there are cases where the same thing is said again and again, 
something the critic compares to the rambling of a drunkard. Implicitly, the critic is saying that there are rules of rational, trustworthy discourse and that the Vedas violate these rules. Any adequate account would fit with empirical reality, be consistent, and say what is needed and no more. It's telling that this line of attack appears most clearly in the logic and rationality-obsessed Nyaya tradition, when they are considering objections against their own position. Actual Buddhist critique of ritual tended to focus more on the violence of rituals involving animals. In fact, the Nyaya may even have imagined the objection themselves. Before getting up to perform the sacrifice after sunrise, these potential defects in the Veda were keeping them up at night. They had left to defend the rationality of their sacred text. Admittedly, rituals sometimes fail, but when they do, this is because of faulty execution by the sacrificer, not a defect in the rules governing the ritual. As for apparently inconsistent rules, these simply apply to different situations. The sacrifice after sunrise goes to the dogs only if you had previously resolved to perform it before sunrise. What about repetition? Well, it is sometimes useful. Fathers seem convinced that if a fertility ritual works, then when the mother is giving birth, it will make sense to remind her repeatedly that she should breathe and push. Mothers out there will have to be the judge of how helpful this really was. But even the staunchest defender of the Vedas would have to admit that they are problematic texts. In addition to the three difficulties raised and then diffused in the Nyaya Sutra, rituals are often described in insufficient detail. Some kind of rational method was needed to systematize the Vedic injunctions and to understand how we should proceed in the face of incomplete information. This was the ambition of the Mimamsa, a school whose mission was to expound and interpret the Veda in the hopes of establishing proper ritual conduct. What could this possibly have to do with philosophy? Well, it turns out that their ideas can be generalized from the ritual context so as to offer a general theory of practical action. They deal with gaps in the Veda by reasoning from one case to other analogous cases. If a ritual is described in insufficient detail, this can be remedied through the procedures they called transfer, adaptation, and annulment of details. For example, to complete the instructions for one ritual, one might look to another similar ritual, which serves us as a model. The details of the model are borrowed for the ritual we need to carry out. It's like when you are, say, replacing the battery in your car for the first time, you know what to do because you've replaced batteries in other cars and can adapt the procedure to the different design of this one. We've already seen an example of how this could work in a ritual context, with gold being substituted for rice so as to adapt a ritual to bring wealth. The logicians called this golden rule of Vedic interpretation rice in the pan reasoning, since it is like when you are cooking rice and taste just one grain to see if all the others are cooked. In that case, you unthinkingly transfer a property from one thing, the grain that you tasted, to others, the rest of the rice. It's particularly striking that Mimamsa apply rice-in-the-pan reasoning to the context of duties, or what they would have called dharma in the context of ritual. As we know, dharma has a broader moral connotation too. So we could extrapolate from Mimamsa exegesis to an idea about ethical reasoning as a whole, we know the right thing to do in one situation because, despite its specificity and complexity, that situation is similar to other situations where we knew what to do. And the Indian tradition encourages us to extrapolate in this way. 
The core text of the Mimamsa school, which of course is the Mimamsa Sutra, says, Dharma depends upon the Veda, so whatever is not Veda is not to be trusted. But how can this be, given that the Veda is at best an incomplete guide to our ritual and moral duties? Well, it may be incomplete, but it is the only guide we have. Most of our knowledge comes, directly or indirectly, from sense experience. But our senses tell us nothing about morality and ritual. Here, the Veda is our only source of knowledge. Jaimini highlights this in the opening sentence of his Mimamsa Sutra by framing the inquiry into Vedic exegesis as an inquiry into Dharma. To this fundamental conviction of the Mimamsa, we can add another, namely that the world has always been as we see it now. The Veda has always been here, and has always governed ritual practices. Thus, we can feel confident that the rituals as handed down to us have a basis in the Veda, even if that basis is obscure to us. And, by the way, these are not claims that apply only to a certain community or region. The Veda's authority in matters of Dharma is not just unchallenged, but also universal in scope. For instance, the Mimamsa Sutta at one point wonders whether ritual practices described as applying in one geographical region should be restricted to that region. No, comes the response. By its very nature, Dharma applies in all places and all times. This is typical of the structure of the Mimamsa Sutra, which becomes a model for many later texts. The Sutra often reads as a kind of dialogue between two characters. One voice speaks for an apparent or prima facie view, he is the Purva Pakshin. This is then typically overruled by another speaker, who delivers the decisive, considered position, he is the Siddhantin. The position of the Siddhantin thus coincides with that of the Mimamsa Sutra itself. It's tempting to say that the Siddhantin is effectively the voice of Jaimini, but as usual, there are historical uncertainties here about the authorship of the Sutra. The date of its composition is already problematic. It may have been written around the 4th to 2nd century BC, and, again as usual, we have to reckon with the possibility that it was composed in stages and not by only one author. It also explicitly refers to earlier and contemporary thinkers, including someone named Badarayana, which is also the name of the author of the Vedanta Sutra. So right at the outset of the two traditions, we see a hint that the Mimamsa and Vedanta schools are intertwined. In fact, they are sometimes referred to as two branches of Mimamsa. Jaimini's Sutra founds what is called prior, or purva, Mimamsa, whereas the Vedanta, pioneered by Bharadayana, can also be called posterior, or uttara, Mimamsa. The point of this is that Jaimini and his followers are focusing on the original Vedas and their ritual prescriptions, whereas Vedanta means at the end of the Veda, an allusion to the more obviously philosophical material in the Upanishads. In both cases, the school is staging an inquiry into the underlying principles of the relevant texts. Indeed, this is what the word Mimamsa means, an inquiry into doubtful or difficult aspects of the Vedic tradition. The Mimamsa Sutra is the longest of the collections to emerge in the Age of the Sutra, with a massive 2,745 sutras, compared to, for instance, only 555 in the Vedanta Sutra. And it's not only its size that makes the text so formidable. If you crack open the Mimamsa Sutra and start reading, you'll immediately feel that you need help. As with other sutra collections, this is a difficult and obscure text, 
perhaps not even meant to be read without an accompanying commentary. Thank goodness then for Shabara, who lived several centuries after the composition of the Mimamsa Sutra. His commentary is considered authoritative by all Mimamsakas, but around the 7th century AD, the school split into two rival factions named after two further interpreters, Kumarira Bhatta and Prabhakara Misha. As we go through these layers of texts and commentary, things get increasingly sophisticated and philosophical, in part because of the need to respond to rival schools. But there is plenty of philosophically interesting material already in Jaimini himself, which we can better understand with the help of Shabara. Unlike earlier works offering esegesis of the Veda, Jaimini operates at a rather abstract and general level. He is interested in the rules governing rituals, but expresses that interest above all by considering the rules that govern those rules. We've already seen this with his proposal to transfer rules from one ritual context to another. Indeed, when he mentions specific ritual practices, it's usually only to provide an example to illustrate his overall theory. At the heart of that theory is an analysis of human action. Rituals are, of course, very special actions, but they are actions nonetheless, so to understand them we need to explore the mechanisms of action more generally. Whenever you do something, you are at least implicitly following a kind of rule or injunction which applies to you because of some desire you have. You might be in the mood for a nice bowl of risotto. Having conceived the desire, you apply the rule, if you want to have rice for dinner, cook the rice in boiling water. In general, the causal situation involves an agent who has a desire, the object or advantage that is desired, the instrument by which it is achieved, and the procedure. In our example, the agent would be you, the object would be the rice you want to eat, the instrument would be cooking, and the procedure would be the whole sequence of steps involved, gathering firewood, getting water from the well, and so on. In the cases Jaimini is interested in, like one who desires riches should boil gold coins, we instead have the agent who is the sacrificer and his desired goal of wealth, while the instrument is the ritual sacrifice and the procedure is the steps needed to carry out the sacrifice. This may all seem quite straightforward, but if you think back to our discussions of Buddhism and the Bhagavad Gita, you'll see that Jaimini's account is far from philosophically uncontroversial. He's claiming that any action presupposes the presence of desire in the one who performs the action. Instead of giving up all desire or detaching yourself from the outcome of what you do, you should act by following the rules that apply to you in virtue of your desires. It may seem surprising that Jaimini makes participation in Vedic ritual so contingent on the sacrificer's goals. Don't we all have a standing obligation to perform the religious rites? As it turns out, the answer is no. There is no pure duty to perform the Vedic rites, for without desire, the injunction to perform a ritual simply does not apply. Jaimini goes so far as to say that, in cases where a sacrificer loses his interest in the outcome when he is partway through a ritual, he should just stop, leaving the ritual incomplete. To a counter-argument that some rituals in the Veda specify no intended outcome at all, Jaimini responds that in such instances, heaven serves as the default object of desire, for heaven is happiness, and happiness is desired by all. Another interesting consequence is that women are invited to participate in the ritual, and not merely because their husbands need to use them as living instruments. Rather, their involvement is justified on the basis that they too have desires. 
This might give you the impression that ritual is being subordinated to human whims and projects, but in fact, just the reverse is the case. For Jaimini, what has ultimate and intrinsic value is the ritual itself. One might say that the ritual uses the human agent, rather than the other way around. The sacrificer and his desire provide the occasion for the ritual. Without human goals, no ritual would occur. But that doesn't mean that the ritual has no value beyond the fulfillment of those goals. Instead, the ritual exists for its own sake. In a particularly dramatic illustration of this, it was laid down that if a sacrificer dies partway through a ritual, his bones could be placed within an antelope skin, and this posthumous puppet would then be made to carry out the remaining steps of the ceremony. Francis Clooney has summed up Jaimini's view as follows. By seeing himself as only one element in the web of relationships, the sacrificer transcends his self-centeredness even as he admits it and lets it lead him to the sacrifice. He learns to play his part without worrying about ridding himself of the desires which integrate him into the larger whole. The Mimamsa viewpoint is diametrically opposed to Buddhism in its total commitment to the value of ritual and the authority of the Veda, and also in its endorsement of human desire. Yet, it also captures something of the spirit of Buddhism, and may be responding to the Buddhist challenge by incorporating some of its ideas. We have a subtle shift away from concrete goals like money and family and towards heaven as a universal aim. We do not have the elimination of desire, but do have the humbling of the individual's desire as a mere contributing factor in the ritual. And, most strikingly, we have an elimination of the supernatural. The Mimamsa Sutra does not tell us to sacrifice to please the gods or to perform rituals out of an absolute religious obligation. Instead, ritual is understood as being parallel to humdrum everyday actions. If you want to get such and such a goal, then you need to follow the prescribed procedure. If the goal in question is risotto, then consult a cookbook. If the goal has to do with dharma, then consult the Veda. Indeed, though scholars sometimes describe the Veda as a revealed or revelatory text, Mimamsa is adamant that it was not revealed by anyone in particular. The Veda has no author, and the seers, or rishis, who expounded it are not like the prophets of the Old Testament. They simply transmit the authoritative Veda, which existed before them and indeed has always existed. Again, we can see here how human agency is being sidelined to some extent, subordinated to the intrinsic value of the Veda itself, just as human agency is subordinated to ritual. The forefathers who passed on wisdom and also reliable practices to us may have been admirable and trustworthy, but they did not invent or compose the tradition that they have passed on. The most a human can do is to serve as a conduit from the past to the future. He is never a conduit between the divine and the rest of humanity, like the prophets of the Hebrew Bible or Muhammad in Islam. This is because no such conduit is needed. The Veda has always been here, a permanent source of knowledge set down by neither God nor man. With this bold claim, Mimamsa makes the strongest possible case for Vedic authority. So far from being false, the Veda represents a truth that is both unimpeachable and originary. But the bolder the claim, the greater the pressure to defend that claim, and Mimamsa does not disappoint. Already Jaimini draws the obvious, if astounding, conclusion that if the Veda is authorless and permanent, then language too must be permanent. 
His commentators provide a further defense of this idea, and also a sophisticated theory of knowledge, meant to explain just exactly why the Veda's authority is beyond challenge. These will be our topics next time, as we see this school justifying religious ritual by appealing to philosophical argument instead of divine authority. So, inquiring minds won't want to miss the next episode of The History of Philosophy in India. Allah.